0: Canada. That music means it is the last radio hour of the week. On this, December the 20th, 2019, we are talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, in truly a momentous week and a great time for a Hillsdale Dialogue about the Constitution and specifically about the power of impeachment, because for only the third time in our nation's constitutional history, uh, the House of Representatives has passed articles of impeachment, or has it? I don't really know, but Dr. Arn joins us. Hillsdale College is where everything you need to know about the founding can be found. You can indeed watch incredibly relevant videos and courses right now about the Constitution and the Framing at Hillsdale.edu. And we're going to explore this issue now. Doctor Arn, good morning. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Merry Christmas. How are you? I am I well, I'm great. The Brits did the right thing in their election and Mitch McConnell is taking Speaker Pelosi to the constitutional woodshed yesterday. But let's begin at the beginning. What's Larry Arne scholar extraordinaire of the framers, think about what happened this week?
1: <laughs> well, I think what everybody else thinks, it's a mess. Um, so I, I so the background to it is interesting, right? So the, in the founding, they set up a method of impeachment. And they're very impressed, as they set it up, with the fact that we don't have a hereditary body uh we don't we don't have a Senate that occupies its stations without consent of the people. everybody's elected and so in Britain, the way you did it was you house the more popular body, House of Commons, votes articles of impeachment and it's tried in the House of Lords well that means that The theory, at least, was that the House of Lords have some distance from regular politics, and they could make a more objective decision. The disadvantage of that is that you have a legislative body that doesn't represent the people. And so they didn't want that. Everybody represents the people in America. The Supreme Court, which is a candidate to take the place of the House of Lords, indirectly represents the people, And the trouble, they think, in the Federalist, if you give this power to remove the president of the United States to the Supreme Court, they will effectively control the president of the United States, except the president has been elected to be the executive by the people. So what to do? And their answer was model after the House of Commons, uh, after the British example, start in the House and then require a trial in the Senate. But they say that's the only way to do it but it will be intensely political. It will be, people will divide up on party lines. And partly for that reason, they require two thirds vote in the Senate to convict and remove the president, which has never been successfully done. So that's one part of the background. And it means that you can count on it. When a thing like this happens, there's gonna be voting on party lines. And because the Senate is narrow, uh, the president could could use could lose a huge uh, uh, suffer a huge defeat in the Senate if a lot of Republicans defected from him. None has so far.
0: None I, I want now. to I want at this point remind people that Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, was reading on Wednesday morning, or excuse me, on Thursday morning from Federalist sixty five, and so he was <laughs> going back to the key document, which I've referred many people to, it discusses exactly what Dr. Arn was just saying, why the Senate? And he says, where else than in the Senate? Could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in its own situation to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accusers. It's just, it's like, it was It was written for today, Dr. Arn. Isn't
1: that funny? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, these,
0: uh,
1: it's, so that's exactly right. This situation is predicted. And uh, now there's one other precedent that it seems to me perfectly apt. And that is the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. who was the president who succeeded on, uh, on Lincoln's assassination. And he was an incredible jerk. And very unpopular and very – he had uh, very bad views about Reconstruction in the South. He was sympathetic to slavery. (laughs) Amazing. And uh, and so this – and now there are two articles of impeachment against Trump, and one of them is obstruction of justice, which we can talk about. And the other is obstruction of Congress. And that one is exactly like the impeachment of Andrew Johnson because the Republicans had overwhelming majorities in the uh in the in the Congress, both houses huge you know the south wasn 't even there right and uh and so Andrew Johnson, you know, a nominally republican administration, they passed a law, and the law said, and they passed it oh they tried this against Lincoln, but Lincoln was too strong. They passed it over his veto called the tenure of office act, and that means what what it said is if you are. Confirmed, if you have to be confirmed by the Senate to an appointment by the President, now you also they have to approve his dismissal. The President can't fire him unless the Senate votes, and of course that would give Senate control of the people working for the President—a tremendous violation of separation of powers. So they passed that over his veto, and then he wanted to fire uh, Edward Stanton, who had been Lincoln's Secretary of War, you know, and who was a formidable man. And he wanted to replace him. One of the candidates was Ulysses Grant. And they brought impeachment proceedings against him because he doesn't have the power to fire him under this Tenure of Office Act. And it narrowly failed. Now, what's happening here? Congress says, if we ask you for a document, you've got to produce it no matter what. And if you ask, if we ask you for a witness, he's got to come talk to us. And there's no executive privilege. And that would you know, destroy the ability of the executive branch to operate, because, of course, it's in the nature of the thing that very much that happens in there has to be confidential. Absolutely. Uh, you know, war and peace, prosecutions, a million things, right?
0: Spies. So they, they, I mean, the, the, the nature yeah. of delicate negotiations with adversaries, the conclusion of peace, the, as you just said, the declaration of war or the authorization yeah. of an attack on al-Baghdadi or something like that.
1: That's right. You know, and let's say uh, we decide, you know, before we knew all the facts about Jeffrey Epstein, you know, the,
0: the suicide, committed suicide, having... The pedophile decided, criminal, yes, who we you know, assumed you know, to be. I mean, he was never convicted.
1: Not the best, best fellow in the world. Right. And uh, Jeffrey Epstein was very politically connected. Both Republicans and Democrats' uh, careers have suffered. And you know, goodness, a member of the royal family Yes, I uh, have suffered by connection to him. But let's say before all that was known, it gets out that they're thinking about prosecuting that guy, Jeffrey Epstein or anybody like him. Right. Well, first of all, y- you won't be able to carry on the investigation, whether to prosecute him, because it'll turn into a political fireball the minute you do it. And that will pervert the course of justice by itself. So the point is, they're trying to breach an old standard which, doubtless, if they had a Democratic president, uh, you know, I think uh, the Republicans have not tried to do this. And that may be, well, they did in the 1860s, although that may be only because they're not strong enough today to do it. But it's certainly true that, if you know, they didn't do any of this stuff to Barack Obama when he had the whole Congress at his
0: And we had Benghazi and we had Fast and Furious and we had the IRS scandal I want to anticipate and repudiate the idea that it was a scandal-free administration. It was not. It had its fair share of scandals, as every presidential administration does. Am I right about that, Dr. Arndt? Every one of them has something? Well, sure. I mean, you know, I run a complicated college, right? You think we
1: don't make a mess every week?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say daily, actually. You've got a lot of yeah, hours not- in your day.
1: You know, there's just a lot of moving parts here and people do stuff and, you know, and you make mistakes all the time. Well, of course, in politics, and it's not bad in politics that mistakes are inflated into corruption and scandal uh, because that's a check and a balance. Right. But there has to be some limit to it so the government can operate.
0: So here's my question before we got one minute to break. Uh, America is ordered to maintain your and mine, and everyone listening's liberty. Does this impeachment process in any way impact our individual liberty?
1: Well, sure. If it, uh, you know, I mean, look, first of all, we're, we live in it. In the end, by the way, the central question in politics in America is always the rights of the individual. Yes. Because it was built to protect those, right? Yes. So, just, you know, there's a very large movement, beginning academic, but now also political for example, to curb freedom of speech. And, you know, speech is policed now
0: extensively. Well, of course it affects civil liberties. Who wins and who loses these days? Amen, it does. That's why we're spending the Hillsdale Dialogue this week on something that didn't happen 3,000 years ago, but happened three days ago. Don't go anywhere, America. Dr. Larry Arnn is my guest of Hillsdale College. Except the Hillsdale.edu. Remember, year-end giving for Hillsdale is deeply encouraged. Because they are the lighthouse of sweet reason in the north. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Two Hewitt. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arndt. It is the Hilldale Dialogue and a momentous week in political history. I don't think it's going to change politics at all, except perhaps increase Donald Trump's advantage heading into 2020. Dr. Arndt, um, we have a mutual friend, David French, and I often agree greatly with David French, and sometimes I disagree with him greatly, but he remains my friend. Yesterday I agreed with something he said and wrote in his uh, French press newsletter for the new publication, The Dispatch. He wrote, there is a huge difference between a narrative that reads, quote, corrupt, impeach, defeated, close quote, and one that reads, quote, persecuted, impeached, triumph, close quote. One is a cautionary tale. The other is a heroic journey. Boy, I thought that was perceptive, and it's what lies ahead for Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. 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 David." David doesn't, you know. I I don't. I know David Trump a little bit, and then I David French. David French a little bit, and I and David Trump. He wouldn't like that. Um, I I know he doesn't like. I know at least he, he doesn't like Trump, right? But right. that's a that's very perceptive, right? Because you know you do. You know it. Remember the caution from the Federalist Papers that you keep talking about. Mitch McConnell read. This is going to be an intensely political thing. Better, however. If you if there can be at least some people who look at it, you know you know try you know we try not to be partisan on the show, and uh you know i i you know i I guess you'd say I supported the impeachment of Bill Clinton, but I kept saying this would never have happened except for the unconstitutional law, the independent prosecutor law, because the prosecutions are supposed to take form in the House. And that means they're political things. That's right. And that means that people are doing it who are in touch with public opinion. And and, you know, they would probably not have let it get this far. I know that many of them didn't want to. But, you know, it all lands on their door. Right. And there's a definite uh, charge of obstruction of justice. Bill Clinton has been disbarred for that. And uh, you can't practice law. And uh, that, and so, you know, then, the, then they're stuck, right? But in this case, you know, is there an actionable breach of the law? And that's, you know, a question. And, you know, it's not just is there a breach of the law, but is there an actionable breach of the law in this context? Because you know, in it, this it, context is the removal of a president.
0: I, I want to pause on something you said. And, again, it was predicted by Hamilton – the convulsive effect of an impeachment is such as to divide the country into two camps. It's very hard to stay out of one camp or the other when the removal of the only person in the country elected by the country as a whole is at issue, especially eleven months out. But I do try and retreat to the constitutional norms. But what is interesting about this episode is no one will admit that there are constitutional norms. As so convulsive has it been, so complete is the divide. That you can't find an island between the two, on which to stand. That, well, it's you know
1: it's it's partisan, right? That's what it's like. I I you know I find it delicious that um, Nancy Pelosi, whom I regard as a patriotic American woman, I I know, you know I've heard her say things that I greatly admired, but I've also heard her heard her. I mentioned it last week. Poor contempt on the Constitution in the context of the. Obamacare thing, but you know she can't shut up about it now. it's the greatest thing, and our founders they established this, and you know so it's uh it's uh you know she's reading that document now, and she's quoting it all the time. but what does it actually say you know it 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 uh it you know it, it here's another thing impeachments of executives, especially of judges, not so much by the way, in England you know and the the English history goes back. You know what 500 years and ours goes back 200 plus and in the impeachment of judges that you know that you know who's who's getting gored here right if there's a corrupt judge everybody wants him out in the case of an executive that's a big deal right and so in in britain forever ago
0: every kind of thing has been impeachable and every kind of thing has not been impeachable we will be right back. Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate. you got to hear him and have Dr. Oren comment it, as he will. Go to Hillsdale.edu for everything. All of our debates at HillsdaleForHugh.com Our dialogues, actually. Don't forget, year-end contributions to the college are welcomed at Hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Oren, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are available at Hillsdale.edu. If you visit it, you will go back again and again and again. If you waste time on cable TV or podcasts, you might want to actually improve your life by watching the Hillsdale Courses, becoming a subscriber to Imprimis, the free newsletter, which arrives a speech digest, actually, in your mail the old-fashioned way once a month. And, of course, all of these dialogues dating back to 2013, as far back as Homer and as far forward as this week, are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, um, during the break, I sent you a uh, column that I wrote for the Washington Post this week that says um, we have four shocks in California but no one ever believed they existed until this past July when there was a earthquake on July 4th and then a much larger one on July 5th a, a six oh point one on July 4th and a 7.1 on July 5th and now I've begun to think that The Brexit vote was a foreshock of the alignment, realignment of politics in Great Britain that happened last Thursday and that the 2016 election in the United States is a foreshock of what's going to happen in 2020. What do you think about my premise?
1: Uh, Well, uh, the future, though imminent, is obscure. But... um it's a, it's a great. I get to read Hugh Hewitt on Friday mornings when you tell me I have to go during the break. Read, read Hugh Hewitt, and uh, and uh, it's a great article. And well, first of all, the Brexit thing, right? That well, I'm sorry, yeah, the 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 general election. Labour, sorry, the Tories carried about ten Labour seats that have been Labour seats since the since about 1950. And who, why? Because the people. Ordinary people, working class. The Conservative Party is becoming a working class party. Well, that may be what's happening to the Democratic Party, too. I'm sorry, to the Republican Party. The Republicans have trouble in the suburbs in America, although I don't know how bad it is. Uh, What Boris did was he held the suburbs, sometimes more narrowly, that that the Tories have typically got. But he picked up all those working class seats and... That is what happened in the 2016 election. Donald Trump won in Pennsylvania and Michigan, handily in Ohio. Wisconsin and Iowa. That's right. Nobody expected that. Right. And nearly Minnesota. So that's a change. Right. There's a shift going on here and it's potentially huge. And it will and it it won't just all be to the benefit of the Republicans. You know, things are changing around. They're going to lose some, too. And we don't really know what what the uh, direction of all that will be or the net result of all that will be, but it is surely huge. And, I go back uh, to and,
0: 2016 and 2015 when you and I retweeted to Radio Switzerland, uh, because Hillsdale is a nonpartisan place. It doesn't do politics. It's not partisan. It, it talks about important political ideas, but it's not partisan. So Dr. Arne can't do politics, and I wouldn't do politics in 2016. I'm not going to do him again if there's a primary challenger against Donald Trump, who's serious, not the people who are currently in the field. I wouldn't do it again. But, but I'm a Republican. I tell people that the, the thing you said in 2016, which I have repeated endlessly, quote, fundamental things are afoot, close quote, Larry Arne 2016, about 100 times. That mm. hasn't stopped. And Mm-mm. fundamental things being afoot means... The tectonic plates of politics are crashing against each other, and the pressure is building. Mitch McConnell went to the floor of the Senate this week to say a couple of things that I want to play for you, the audience and have Dr. Arnn comment on. First one, cut number six.
2: By the Speaker's own standards, the standards she set, she has failed the country. The case is not compelling, not overwhelming, and as a result, not bipartisan. The failure was made clear to everyone earlier this week when Senator Schumer began searching for ways the Senate could step out of our proper role and try to fix the House Democrats failures for them. And it was made even more clear last night when Speaker Pelosi suggested that House Democrats may be too afraid, too afraid to even transmit their shoddy work product to the Senate. Mr. President, it looks like the prosecutors are getting cold feet in front of the entire country and second guessing whether they even want to go to trial. They said impeachment was so urgent that it could not even wait for due process, but now they're content to sit on their hands. This is really comical. Democrats own actions concede that their allegations are unproven. The articles aren't just unproven. They're also constitutionally incoherent, incoherent. Frankly, if either of these articles is blessed by the Senate, we could easily see the impeachment of every future president of either party. Let me say that again. If the Senate blesses this historically low bar, we will invite the impeachment of every future president. Dr. Arne, I sometimes... The House Democrats' allegation.
0: Stop it, stop it. I sometimes pause in awe of Cocaine Mitch, his nickname. I think we have, like, a Henry Clay level of talent in Mitch McConnell, certainly the best Republican congressional leader of my lifetime. And he has gone to the high ground here. He is not doing low politics. He's up on the constitutional heights. Well, he's got, uh, he's got those attributes. Right.
1: Because first of all, what kind of a leader is the leader of a legislative body? It's very different from an executive because, you, you know, you're herding cats. And he, he kept all of the vote, all of the Republican votes in the Senate in line on the Obamacare votes. Olympia Snow and Susan Collins. Right. And they're from Maine. It's very, very, you know. Let's call them
0: very moderate vote, so Republicans. Republican Yep, yeah. they are the old and, New England and, wing know, of the Republican Party,
1: and they're smart, right? And he and they're good people, and he respects them, and he was patient, and he and now in this thing, see, he's, uh, he he he's, he makes a good point. What they're fighting about is that the Republican Party, Schumer wants and Pelosi wants the Republican Party, the, the Republican majority in the Senate, to compel Donald Trump. To produce a bunch of w- witnesses from inside the administration, which witnesses mostly they did not even a subpoena. Some of them they did, and and you know on the ground of executive privilege. And we talked about that. That's a real thing, right? You're going to have to have some form of that. They didn't. They couldn't get it, right? Now they want to make the Senate do that. In other words, the Senate is going to have to redo the investigation and the prosecution. And that's not what they do. I mean, first of all, there are so few presidents. What do they do? But that—that's not what the division of labor is.
0: It is, you know. He goes on. Let's do the second part of McConnell cut number seven.
2: This week wasn't even the first time House Democrats have introduced articles of impeachment. It was actually the seventh time. They started less than six months after the president was sworn in. They tried to impeach President Trump for being impolite to the press, for being mean to professional athletes, for changing President Obama's policy on transgender people in the military. All of these things were high crimes and misdemeanors, according to Democrats. Now, this wasn't just a few people. Scores, scores of Democrats voted to move forward with impeachment on three of those prior occasions. So let's be clear, the House's vote yesterday was not some neutral judgment that Democrats came to with great reluctance. It was the predetermined end of a partisan crusade that began before President Trump was even nominated, let alone sworn in. For the very first time in modern history, we've seen a political faction in Congress promise from the moment, the moment a president election ended, they would find some way to overturn it. A few months ago, Democrats three year long impeachment in search of articles found its way to the subject of Ukraine. House Democrats embarked on the most rushed, least thorough, and most unfair impeachment inquiry in modern history. Chairman Schiff's inquiry was poisoned by partisanship from the outset. Its procedures and parameters were unfair in unprecedented ways. Democrats tried to make Chairman Schiff into a de facto special prosecutor, notwithstanding the fact that he is a partisan member of Congress who'd already engaged in strange and biased behavior. He scrapped the precedent to cut the Republican minority out of the process. He denied President Trump the same sorts of procedural rights that houses of both parties had provided the past presence of both parties. President Trump's counsel could not participate in Chairman Schiff's hearings, present evidence, or cross-examine witnesses. The House Judiciary Committee's crack at this was even more ahistorical. It was like the Speaker called up Chairman Nadler and ordered one impeachment, rush delivery, please. The committee found no facts on its own, did nothing to verify the Shift report. Their only witnesses were liberal law professors and congressional staffers. What do you think
0: of that, Dr. Larry Arn? Hmm? Well, that's convincing, isn't it?
1: It is. You know, I, I wavered a little early because if, impo- if being impolite on occasion is an impeachable offense, they're going to get Trump. And uh, and, you know, he's a very gracious man, I think, mostly, but certainly very often. But once in a while, he can be a little rough. And and that's what they've got. Right. And so and this thing, you you know, the thing you have to know about this Ukraine, Ukraine thing, it's the elephant in the room. Donald Trump is under a legal obligation to find corruption. And it's not just that there's a hue and cry against it right now because everybody alleges that everybody else is guilty of it. It's also that that's a law, right? And sure enough, you want corruption ferreted out. And if it happens in a country abroad, then there's nothing wrong with the president of the United States trying to get the help of that country to, to find it. And, you know, he, he the transcripts have been released. Trump has said uh, three things you know, to the Ukrainian people that, are, and they're all on record, and they're all released, and in none of them does he say, "I want you to get my political enemy," and I, and I'll withhold favors till you do.
0: But you know, Doctor Arn, we'll, we'll come back. We'll have to talk about this. There is a fundamental perception that he did do that on the part of the media. That I had a conversation with a great reporter yesterday, off the record, uh, where that reporter swore up and down that's what he had done. And I said, no, he did not do that. And the reporters were with great. VMA. I mean, there was no reason. We have to come back and talk about the fact when we can't agree on a phone call transcript. Boy, we're exactly where Hamilton and 65 said we would be. I'll come back for the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, Hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Sue Hewitt. Ending a radio week live with Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at Hillsdale.edu. I hope there's video of your brand new chapel. Is there? Can people see the chapel at hillsdale.edu? Yeah, yeah.
1: Just go, go to our website and follow the link to the chapel. And the dedication service is online, and there are pictures of it online. <laughs> there are even construction photographs of it. You know, that's a, it's an
0: amazing thing. Did you hold, and, are you planning to hold Christmas services there this year?
1: Uh, no, next year. We, we're going to have uh, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter services uh, this year. We couldn't get it scheduled because, see, the, the kids go home after finals on a, you know, they went last Saturday. Right. <laughs> and so it has to be, you know, two weeks early. And, we're you know, we're absorbing the chapel right now. We're getting used to it. It's full all the time. Kids are in there praying all the time. Can't get them to quit. And, uh, uh, but we're going to have a lot of services. Our first choral even song is in February. Uh, and uh it 's going to be gorgeous, and we 're next year we 're going to have a dedicated choir to sing in that chapel
0: and uh so it 's going to be you know a place of beauty and inspiration you know there is a a, a great Anglican tradition carol 's and lessons that has been uh spread abroad into every denomination and carols and lessons, seven lessons, seven carols that allows for the presentation of just glorious music. And and our church had that last week. I cannot wait. I am almost certain you'll adopt that. And uh, you will have a glorious uh, Christmas tide in that chapel. How is it acoustically for singing? Is it good?
1: Well, it's uh, unbelievable. Uh, It's, uh, it's resonant, right? And that's what you want for music. It's, it's why it's hard to get the spoken word distinct. But uh, I can even tell you a quick story about that. And if you go to a big old church where the organ sounds great, it's usually hard to hear the speaker. Oh. and You have to really work at that, right? And uh, like Michael Ward, you know who that is? He's yes. a chaplain and a, a priest in Oxford, and he's a really great man. Anyway, he told me that he speaks often at St. Mary Margaret's church, the oldest church in Oxford, the original church, and it's a nightmare. And he, has to, he, he said, I have to exaggerate how I pronounce my consonants, or nobody can make out anything. So I go to Westminster Abbey, which, which is my favorite place to go to choral Evensong. And he said, I said to them, tell me how to be heard in this, auto, in, this chat, in this church. And the lady replied, just like you're talking to me. Well, see, that's, that's what you want, and that's hard to get. And because of the, and it's because of the thing that makes music. I mean, I walked in there. The chapel is our chapel has made me cry four or five times. And one time I walked in there, and you know, a few days before the dedication, and the choir and the orchestra had got in there to practice. And there was one young woman. You know, she's the first violinist in our orchestra, and we have a very good orchestra that win awards. And she's by herself on the on the on the chancel, playing. The violin, just one violin, and it was just awesome, and I just, it made me cry, and you know, so, and so when a whole bunch of them get to singing and
0: playing, and when the organ gets going, it's just something else. Who is the architect from Notre Dame that designed this magnificent place? Duncan Struik. That's it, Duncan Stryke. Um Has he received, I mean, has every architect in America come and said, that's amazing?
1: Yeah, well, I uh, so you know for a lot of reasons I've come to know a lot of classical architects and one of them is a guy named Michael Imber in San Antonio and my daughter happens to work for him she's an architect and uh, she reports to me that he said that chapel would constitute a life's work if that's the only thing he ever did and you know you can wow. read in the Wall Street you, you can read in the Wall Street Journal last week. Uh, the very great Michael Lewis, their architecture critic and a professor professor of uh, architecture and art history at Williams College, he's a brilliant man. He's been in Imprimus. He came and I sat with him in the chapel for four hours on a Sunday morning, and it's one of the five buildings in his best buildings of twenty nineteen in the Wall Street Journal. Oh my goodness! Write up.
0: Yeah. You know, we never planned this beyond a single subject generally, I had no idea that we would end up there, but I'm glad that we did. Michael Lewis is writing in the, in the WSJ every year. He does. There's a picture of it. I'm looking at the, the nave and chancel at Christ Chapel at Hillsdale college, Duncan yeah. strike architect, LLC, um, yeah. that we did not, know. no one told me about this. Why was I not informed? Well,
1: we're not very efficient now. We're very efficient, but it's Christmas. We're going to do some publicity about that thing. And we, we, that guy's going to come teach teach for a week at Hillsdale College next year at least we've agreed that in principle he's just he is just a he's a national treasure that guy he knows wow. so
0: much and it's a great you know, picture
1: genocide. oh yeah yeah well he when we when we walked into it he, he didn't say a lot about it we We walked from my house over to the chapel i give you know it's sunday morning and uh I give him quick breakfast and coffee and we walk in and he we walk past Central Hall, the great old building at Hillsdale, and he looks and he says, "So he says, you're building a Roman Plaza." <laughs> and I said, "Correct." <laughs> and then, and he notices everything. But when he walks into the chapel proper, he said, "Oh, I'm surprised." This is American. And
0: I said, correct. uh. Ah, And he closes the review. Christ Chapel sparkles and shows that the rules of classical architecture are no more an impediment to imaginative design than the rules of grammar are to imaginative speech. What a great way to close this week's Hilltale Dialogue. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dwayne. We'll be back next week on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.